That, of course, is a ridiculous made-up stat. Good morning, everyone. Morning. I'm very sunburnt. I've had to roll up the bottom of my jeans just to provide ventilation because every time I walk, it stings. So, uh, yes, anyway, we can pray later. We can all gather around me. We're going to be opening up God's Word. We're continuing our series through Galatians. And uh, we're looking at these letters written by Paul uh, to churches that he started. And he's going in hard with these letters to uh, the church, these writings to the church in Galatia. Usually, Paul's writings are marked with thankfulness. There's a bit of, you know, what I thank you for. But there's none of that here in these writings. He's going in with some uh, real rebuke, actually, and challenge in these writings. Uh, If we take a little step back, just to paint a bit of a picture, Christianity was birthed in the the Jewish messianic movement in Jerusalem. And uh, it's a message for all, for everyone. And the the words, the, the, the gospel spread. It spread. And there was as many non-Jews in this Jesus movement as there was Jews. So just picture that. And, the, and from that, uh, two differing groups, huge debate kind of kicked off, huge debate carried on. You can read of that in Acts 15. Historically, the covenant people of God focused as one ethnic group, Israel, set apart, they were set apart from the teaching of the Torah. So uh, they, they, they kind of, committed to rules that they were to follow, circumcision of males, keeping Sabbath, and also eating kosher. And many uh, Jewish Christians were insistent that the non-Jews who had come to know Jesus were to follow these rules as well, to obey the Torah. And they rock up at Galatia. They rock up at the church that Paul had started. And Paul is raging. (laughs) Paul is angry at what has happened off the back of it. So we have our teaching series called Freedom in Christ. We've seen this trouble that Paul is encountering. He's encountering a gospel that's been rehashed, that's been stuff added onto, and the church have lapped it up with added parts, added requirements, and they've thrown the church into disarray, and Paul wants to call it out He wants to explain his incredible story, the direct revelation and encounter with Jesus. And when it comes to the gospel, he isn't afraid to ruffle feathers. And we read at the beginning of chapter 2 some more pressure from uh, from these groups of people. And also the agreement of James, Cephas, which is Peter, and John, Barnabas, and Paul, that they would continue their mission to spread the gospel to share the good news to the Gentiles and to the circumcised, God's covenant people, Israel. And that in the mix of all that, that they remember the poor. Do not forget the poor, we read in chapter 2 and verse, what bit is it? I can't remember. At the tail end of the middle of chapter 2, we read of that. So what we're going to read now is we're going to unpack some thoughts from verse 11. We're going to read Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 to 21, and I'm going to pray before we do that, and we're going to see what God wants to do. Come, Holy Spirit. We need you, Lord. We need you. We pray that you would move. 
don't want to predict or expect what is going to happen. We want to be open. So we just present to you our whole lives and foster ourselves in availability and openness. And we say, Lord, speak. You have us. You have our attention. You have our attention. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Galatians 2 starting it should be on the screen as well we're starting at verse 11 when Cephas came to Antioch I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned for before certain men came from James he used to eat with the Gentiles but when they arrived he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we, we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Amen. Amen. So I want to unpack some thoughts for the week ahead from these verses, but I want to start with a, a little story. I passed my driving test about 12 years ago now, and I was a bit of a late bloomer when it came to driving. And I passed first time, even though my instructor wasn't great. My instructor wasn't a great instructor at all. The minute he would collect me, he would head to the petrol station and he would fill up his car and he would go and get a coffee and he would waste like 10 minutes every single week on my driving lesson that I was paying good money to, uh, to have. I wasn't bothered at the very beginning of learning to drive. I wasn't too bothered because I was terrified. <laughs> I was like, any way we can shorten my driving lesson would be great because when I got behind the wheel, I was like, ah, cars, what do I do? I was just absolutely terrified. But as I began to get a bit more confident behind the wheel, I got a bit more annoyed. And I remember getting back after my test, uh, going up to our wee flat in Aberdeen and sitting next to Maddie on our couch and saying to her, I passed my driving test. And she genuinely couldn't believe it. <laughs> like, I remember we're sitting on the couch and we talked for a flat and I just sat, 
past my driving. And she jumped up and she kind of looked at me, what? Who was he? How much did you pay him? She couldn't believe it. Neither could I, if I'm honest. And now I love driving. I love road trips. I love playlists on a road trip. I love having a good sing song on a road trip. I remember in our first car, which was a wee Renault Clio, uh, which was gifted to us actually by a couple in church that tapped us on the shoulder and said, I believe God says I have to, we have to give you our car. And we were like, wow. We had just, start, we had be just got engaged uh, and Mary had just passed her test and we got gifted this little Renault Clio. But it did have a few wee quirks. Uh, I had a leak from the sunroof. Do you remember sunroofs? I'd love a sunroofs need to come back. I had a leak in the sunroof that whenever we turned, if it was raining, water would pour in. So we had a piece of plastic that we would divert the water with that whoever was in the passenger side, just to make sure the dry, that whoever was driving never got soaked. It was, a, it was a great wee car though. But I remember as well, the steering fluid would leak all the time. So we constantly needed a wee bottle of steering fluid. And uh, when it was empty, you could hardly steer the car at all at round bends. It was like kind of a world's strongest man challenge to kind of get the wheel going round. But when you had the fluid in, it was fine. It, it drove brand new. I, I've called this morning's talk the steering wheel. Because as I read this passage, that was the picture and image I got. There was a lot of... Uh, imagery around the steering wheel, where we're headed, what we're focusing on, what is driving us day by day, who is driving us, who has control. In some moments, it's really easy to get to where we want. Other times, it maybe feels like an absolute effort. Sometimes things get thrown at us in life, which impact us. So we're going with the steering wheel imagery as we unpack these couple of verses from Paul. The first thing I want to look at is the grip of fear, the grip of fear. I remember a journey that Mary and I took from Glasgow, or was it, yeah, it was from Glasgow in our Skoda Fabia. I'm realizing now I'm just going through my car history. Uh, it's like an episode of Top Gear or something, just going through every car we had and attaching a little story to it. But it was January, we're driving back from Mary's brother-in-law in Glasgow, back up to Aberdeen. And the weather was really nice. It was crisp. But then we hit Dundee. And that sounds like it's a slant on Dundee. Like I'm <laughs> but it isn't. It wasn't Dundee's fault. The snow just fell. It just absolutely bucketed down. It was snow that I'd never encountered before. And it was genuinely one of the most scared moments I've ever had in my life. I, Mary and I were like praying in tongues for the, the next 20 minutes. We had worship blaring. Before we had our kids, we were just terrified, terrified. Cars were off the road every 20 feet or so. You could see cars with hazard lights just flashing. And uh, you couldn't see where the road was. You, I remember my grip on the steering wheel. I remember my grip on the steering wheel. I was like holding on for dear life, like properly gripping on. I was scared. And it was in this moment, this grip of fear moment, that rationale, in a way, went out the window. It went out the window for me. I just wanted to stop the car. <laughs> I just wanted to stop the car and hunker down for the night. I, uh, I said to Mary, I just suggested it. Well, let's just stop. Let's just stop. We'll stop on the road. We'll put our hazards on. I was terrified. I didn't want to drive any further. Then I looked for a side road, and we took the next side road, and that was a bad idea to do that. It was a bad idea. 
You do silly things in fear moments, is what I've begun to realize, or what I realized at that point. Then I was asking Mary, do we have snacks in the car? Have we got a blanket? Will we be okay longer term? How long can we survive in this car? Let's make it our home. (laughs) Do we phone our family and let them know we might not be back up the road tonight. We might, it might be a day or two. I'm in this unfamiliar place. I can't see anything. I don't know where I'm going. And then in 30 minutes or so after me gripping onto the wheel, the sky just broke and uh, the sun came out and we managed to get back on the road. It was like the snow disappeared. The road was grand and we managed to get back home. But I remember afterwards, uh, my hands, I remember my hands, they're just completely, it felt like arthritic almost. It took like a week to recover just with that grip on the steering wheel. In the grip of fear is a really scary place. In the grip of fear led me down some ridiculous routes and decisions. In the grip of fear is a scary place. It's uh, often reason and rationale go out of the window. The grip of fear can lead us to hide Jesus from view. The grip of fear uh, can bring things into view which really we shouldn't be pursuing. When we see Peter when he went to Antioch in verse 11, Paul called him out. He used to eat with the Gentiles, the non-Jewish Christians, but when they arrived, he didn't want to. He was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group is what we read. And Paul calls him out in front of everybody. The grip of fear hit Peter. These folk, when they rocked up, something changed. Something changed. It pressurized him into doing something perhaps he didn't want to do. Fear had a hold. He rejected the very people that he had more in common with. Fear had a hold of the steering wheel. And it led him down some roads he didn't want to go down. Have you ever done something you know you didn't want to, but fear of the outcome leads you down that road? What will they think if they see the real me? If they see what I really believe, what would it change? I can't go down that road. I remember in primary six, a lot of the, well, my whole class knew that I went to church and uh, called me like a Bible basher and son of a preacher man and used to get all the usual banter. And uh, one day they tried to get me and my friend to swear. And I remember I was walking home from school and they like crowded around us and they were like, go on, Thomas, swear, swear. And go on, Ross, swear, swear. And I remember just being really scared because I wanted to keep in with the crowd. I wanted to make sure that these guys still liked me. I wanted to make sure that my standing at all wasn't impacted by what I believed and going to church and uh, believing in Jesus. I wanted to be cool. I wanted to have respect. And I remember getting all the way to my house and they asked me again, Thomas, just swear. And I remember just shouting out in my fear, the swear word outside my house. And I remember just getting inside, closing the door, and I just felt like, that isn't me. That isn't me. I've given in here, and I felt so rubbish. And you know, as well, my friend, who wasn't even a Christian, he didn't back down. He didn't swear. He's like, nope, 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 not doing it. Didn't give in. 
Where has fear led us down some compromise in who Jesus has called us to be? Where have we watered down what we believe? Perhaps what we do on Sundays. Where have we said yes to something that is sinful because it might impact our reputation or our standing with our friends or our colleagues? We've just kind of slotted in because everyone else is doing it. The grip of fear. Maybe just like my hands were hurting after gripping through that storm, maybe we're hurting this morning because of those decisions. We would love to pray with you after that fear would lose its grip in Jesus' name, in this space. He is able. He is able. So we, we've looked at the grip of fear. Secondly, I want to look at how we are viewing doing. How we are viewing doing. A, a couple of months ago, I took a fancy for brownies. I just wanted brownies. I wanted to make brownies. I love I love brownies. And as I was food shopping, I seen the ingredients boxes. You know the ingredients boxes where you just add like two things to it. You can like instantly make brownies. You add, I think it's water and an egg and oil and you put them in. I don't know. Do you have to add oil as well? Yeah, you add a little bit of oil and you put it in the baking tray and it's ready. It's like a quick fire way to make brownies. And uh, so I bought it. It was made and it was eaten before I got home by our boys. I remember getting home one day and it was just the tray, and all I had was the little crumbly bits around the edges, so I tried to gather them all and make a mini brownie out of it, but it wasn't the same at all. I was gutted. I gutted. I came across a story that when these instant cake mixes were first designed uh, by the company, it didn't go down well at all by uh, consumers. Consumers weren't latching onto them. They weren't buying them. And the reason was the research discovered that the buying public felt uneasy about a mix that only required water. That's what the research suggested as they asked folk. Something that you just add water to? Like, what? No, not getting that. So what they did, apparently people thought it was too easy. So the company altered the formula and changed the directions to add in an egg into the mix in addition to the water. And the idea worked, and following that decision, sales dr jumped dramatically for these instant mixes. And this story reminds me about how some, how some of us can react to the plan for salvation. To some folk, it sounds too easy and too simple to be true. Even though the Bible says in Ephesians, by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not of works. They feel there's something more they must do, something they must add to God's recipe for salvation. They think they must perform good works to earn God's favor and earn eternal life. But the Bible is clear we are saved not by works of righteousness, but according uh, works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy. Unlike the cake mix manufacturer, God has not changed his formula to make uh, salvation more marketable. The gospel we proclaim must be free of works, even though it may sound too easy. In the passage, we see the word justification mentioned three times in one verse, in verse 16. I'll just read that verse to you. 
know that a person, uh, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified in faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. The word justified is a legal term. It's borrowed from a law, and it's the opposite of condemnation or being guilty. Justify is not guilty, innocent, righteous, made right with God. In the Bible, God's act of unmerited favor puts a sinner, you and me, right with him by accepting him and treating him as righteous, as not guilty, and as innocent. Justification by faith alone, by believing in Jesus, not work. We have nothing to do. There's a danger in doing. There's a danger in do. How are we viewing doing? It's a funny story about the instant cake mixes. Folk felt they had to add. Need, need one more thing to add to that. Just like the Jewish Christians in the passage. Must be circumcised. Must observe Sabbath. Must eat the right foods in the right way. There were ceremonial laws heaped upon the Mosaic laws. It was like laws and things we must do to earn. Do, do, do. Only then. Our culture loves to do. Doing can define us. Doing shapes us. Doing can tell us how we are. Doing can shape how we view each other. Doing can help us feel better. Doing can, uh, yeah, just we can identify with doing. It's where we, where we put our identity. That's where our culture uh, tells us, or what, what our culture tells us around doing. Doing cannot change anything uh, it cannot change anything from God towards you right now. How God views you does not change at all by your doing. Singing louder during worship, learning more Bible verses, not missing church for the rest of the year, studying Greek, filling our head with all sorts of knowledge, being the best, working longer, giving more, sinning less, it's not going to change anything. It's not going to change anything. We're a lot in our world, and its metrics are based on doing. God's metrics are believe in me, trust in me, and you will be saved. How are we viewing doing this morning? Is it a hamster wheel of chasing approval? Is it draining, keeping the plates spinning? Do we feel that we need to meet every single person's need because that's who we are? Is it trying harder to please God? Is it after a bad week or a bad decision or a bad turn, trying then to be extra holy to make it up to God? Paul reminds the church in Galatia that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to tackle a, a comeback that was surely leveled at him in the passage. Uh, we, we read of that in chapter 2, in verse 17. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not, Paul says. Okay, if we're justified by faith alone, 
That means I can keep on sinning because I know that I'm forgiving. We're forgiven. I'm justified by faith. I don't need to do anything. And Paul goes on to reply that when Christ comes, everything changes. Everything changes. When we believe and trust in Christ Jesus, everything changes from the inside out. That character is shaped by God's presence that the fruits of the Spirit begin to grow in us and begin to be seen by others. Paul is essentially saying, how can change not come? How can change not come? How can sin not be tackled head on? The Bible Project, which is a brilliant, brilliant uh, project, on, they do a lot of mini videos on YouTube. I encourage you to have a look if you want a little run through of a book of the Bible. We've got a giant book so it is about that size. It's illustrated all the books of the Bible in like cartoon. And it's absolutely incredible if you're a visual learner. The Bible Project share it like this. When people trust in Jesus, what's true of him becomes true of them. His life, death, and resurrection become our life, death, and resurrection. We are a new creation. Christ in me, the hope of glory. It's amazing. It's amazing says in the passage, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by the faith, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How are we viewing doing? Perhaps there's some freedom to come this morning in that. Perhaps the Lord wants to meet us in that. Perhaps those little images of the hamster wheel and spinning plates, it's like, oh, Lord, I've been trying to earn. I've been trying to make it up to you. I can just be. And perhaps he just wants to set you free from that. And then just finally, an invitation. There's an invitation is ultimately what I see in this passage. And this incredible, unbelievable truth and promise is an invitation. An invitation to swap seats to give him full control, to give him the steering wheel, to not just sing about going anywhere or doing anything, but to let him steer the course. Let's not wrestle back control. I have realized I'm a rubbish passenger. I'm not very good when somebody else is driving. Is anybody else in that? Yes. You know what? I think because deep down, I think I know best. I think as I'm kind of preparing this, I think that's the root thing. I think I know best. And that's where I think walking in a vibrant, living relationship with Jesus, I think surrender is really important. When we come to the Lord and we go, you know best. I don't know best. More of you, Lord, less of me. The brilliant preacher J. John speaks of this just as I come to close. He speaks about Jesus being in the car, Jesus being in the car. And you can watch this YouTube video. I encourage you to search for it after today. J. John, Jesus in the car. And he speaks about it and he says, is Jesus in the boot? He says, is Jesus in the boot? Does he, do, we, do we open the boot on Sunday morning and say, Jesus, come on, come on out for a little hour, sing song, little party. Come on in, we can have a tea and coffee and we can sing about you and learn a little about you. Okay, church is finished. Jesus, get back in the boot. We'll see you next Sunday morning. Is Jesus in the boot? Is Jesus in the back seat? Is he a passenger? 
No, okay, maybe he's in the front seat. He's not a passenger, but he's a companion, but he's still a passenger. And you can kind of see where it's going, can't you? Is he in the driving seat? Is he in the driving seat? Yes, he's in the driving seat, but are you a backseat driver? Are you a backseat driver? Jesus is heading left. No, 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 Jesus, don't go left. Don't go left. Oh, Jesus, you're taking me down the road of generosity. No, no, I'm not wanting to go down that road. Please make a U-turn. I'm not wanting to go down that road of generosity that you're leading me into. Oh, you're wanting me to go down that road of forgiveness for that? I'm not, nope, 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 no, I don't want to go there, Jesus. Where is Jesus in the car? Belief in Jesus has to affect our behavior. Jesus is in your life and in my life, but we need to reposition him. We need to say to him this morning, have the steering wheel. If he's there, his spirit will produce fruit. The character will be formed. The addictions will be floored. The sins will be conquered. What is the dashboard saying? What little warning lights are coming up right now as I'm speaking, as we speak about Jesus in the car? Where is the fruit? Is there fruit growing as we come into this space and leave this space and and desire to walk with Jesus? Where is the fruit around our lives day by day in the last week? For some of us, as I bring things to a close, we're being called to reposition Jesus, to swap seats, to give him the steering wheel. So we're going to have a chance to respond and, and to do that as a church family. So why don't we stand? Why don't we stand?